0: Out the oven. It's Cinema Bums. I'm Emmett, and I'm Wade. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie in a popular film franchise one each week to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today we are continuing our mini series X two three about Fox's X Men films. We will fully spoil today's film, but try at all costs not to spoil any future entries in the series. Up right now, it's X two X Men United.
1: Yes. Let me stop you right there, Emmett. I always knew this film as X2 X-Men United. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I found out today that it's technically just called X2. If you go to buy it anywhere now, or if you watch it on Disney Plus like we did, uh-huh. it's just called X2. Okay. So I looked this up, and I want us all to remember that the title of the first film was X-Men. Uh huh. Now the second film is called X2. Uh huh. Which is pretty bold to assume that everyone would just know there were no other X films on the market. Uh, It was marketed as Uh X2 X-Men United. Okay. So like all of the trailers and the posters and the promo material said X2 X-Men United, but that's not actually the title of the film. Fascinating. It is also called everywhere other than America, Uh X-Men 2.
0: As opposed to just X2. Yes. Yes. God, they were really on something. And if the, I can spoil something. <laughs> early
1: 2000s, please do. The title of the next film, okay, the
0: third film.
1: Uh-huh. So remember, the titles so far have been X-Men I- and X2. Okay,
0: The next film is called X-Men The Last Stand. Okay, this really irritates me. But we <laughs> can get into that when we get into our Last Stand episode. Um, if there's any last stands out there, please uh, oh, do no. not add us on social oh, media no. because it is... The worst, but again, we're going to get into that a little bit later, as in next week. So here we go. It is directed by Brian Singer. And before Uh we have to do any more Brian Singer throat clearing over here, the bad boy is back in the director's seat. We just like to say uh, see our our discussion of Brian Singer from the last episode on uh, the first X Men. Uh, But I would like to add to that discussion. Perhaps in the realm of separating the art from the artist, that if uh, Brian Singer was as messed up on drugs as it seems like he was, and Kevin Feige was really having to like drag him out of the hotel room and come and put him in the director's chair, I think it's fair to question how much of the things that you really love about X Men and X2 uh, are really the vision of Brian Singer as opposed to the vision of the producers, the Cinematographers and the writers around him, mm-hmm. um, which at least for me gives me a pass on saying that I can really love these movies uh, without feeling that bad about supporting that dude's work.
1: Yes, well, we're talking about Brian Singer. Actually, let me add a little bit as well. Uh, these are some things I found in the excellent piece in the Hollywood Reporter uh, entitled "Brian Singer's Traumatic X Men Set: The Movie Created a Monster" by Tatiana Siegel for. The film, the original film's 20th anniversary. This was published in the Hollywood Reporter this year in July. I'm going to start with uh, this, which is a quote from Lauren Schuler Donner, uh, the producer of the last two films. And all of this is taken directly from the Hollywood Reporter. It's a weird business, the film business, says Schuler Donner. We honor creativity and talent, and we forgive the brilliant ones unconsciously, we probably do enable them by turning a blind eye to whatever they're doing and taking their product and putting it out to the world. Or, as another exec involved with the film notes, his behavior was poor on the first movie. We accommodated him on the first movie, and therefore we have to accommodate him on the second movie. And on and on, and it created a monster. Something relevant to our discussion last week, Uh Alex Burton, who is the actor who played Pyro in the first Mm X-Men, Uh, is not in this movie. He's replaced by Aaron Stanford. You just see Pyro in one very brief shot in the first one where he creates a little fireball behind his back. Uh, he's not in this movie because eight days after the premiere of X-Men, he filed a lawsuit against Brian Singer, uh, claiming that he, Alex Burton, had been plied with drugs, sexually assaulted, held against his will, and threatened with physical harm during the production of the film. All allegations are, of course, denied by Brian Singer. Okay, this is another quote. Singer's behavior, this is on the set of X2. Singer's behavior grew erratic and destructive, culminating in a fight between the director and producer Tom DeSanto that shut down production. Jeez. Sources who are present say DeSanto attempted to halt shooting when he learned that Singer was inca- incapacitated after taking a narcotic. Some crew members had taken the same drug, and DeSanto had become fearful that someone on set could be injured. All of the main cast, with the exception of McKellen, were in that scene that day, which takes place on the X-Jet and comes near the end of the movie. But Singer was defiant and continued shooting, leading to a botched stunt that left Jackman bleeding on camera. No stunt coordinator was present because the scene was supposed to be shot the following day. Winter, the X-Men producer who had the authority to stop production, did so. But the next day, the studio sided with Singer and told DeSanto to return to Los Angeles. That prompted the main cast members, Minus McKellen and Ramjin, all dressed in their full X-Men costumes, to converge in Singer's trailer and confront him, threatening to quit if DeSanto left. That's when Halle Berry famously said to Singer, you can kiss my black ass, a line that has been oft-reported in the years since, but never with the correct backstory.
0: Damn!
1: So that's from the production of this movie. Wow! Um, And then I'd like to finish with this, which I think puts it much better than either of us could. This is from GLAD's Matthew Lasky. It's critical when analyzing Brian Singer's body of work that we center the experiences and trauma faced by his victims, and put their continued well-being first. Glad stands for the protection of LGBTQ people, especially LGBTQ youth, and those who would wish to do them harm are no friend of the LGBTQ community. It's worth noting that there have been many other cast and crew members on Singers Productions whose talents were essential in creating positive LGBTQ representation on films that he directed. We hope that those cast and crew members will continue to fight to tell LGBTQ stories in Hollywood on projects
0: with other directors. Yeah, I think that I think that says it pretty well. All right. So after that, a little bit of Brian Singer throat clearing. Mm <clears> hmm. <throat> Uh, it was that was who it was directed by. It was written by Michael Doherty, uh, Dan Harris, and David Hayter, who you will remember from our last podcast as both the voice of Solid Snake and uh, Metal Gear Solid and also the main writer on X1. Uh, yes, uh, and I don't know if you know this, but there's a uh,
1: Writers Guild of America does their distinctions with ampersands or the word and.
0: Oh, yeah. So if there's an
1: ampersand, it means the two writers wrote it together. And Mm. if there's an and, it's two separate drafts. So uh, Michael and Dan Harris wrote their draft together. It's credited with an ampersand. Okay. And then uh,
0: David Hayter's draft was separate. Okay. Interesting. The cinematography is by Newton Thomas Siegel, a frequent singer-collaborator. The music uh, is by John Ottman. It was also edited by John Ottman. Who's a frequent collaborator with Singer as well? He, the first movie had music by Michael Kamen uh, and had three different film editors, which you can kind of tell. Ottman uh, did a new main theme um, on the music side for this movie, for X2. And he does a lot of scores, but he only edits Brian Singer's films. And he has edited all of Brian Singer's films except for the original X Men both before and after the original X-Men including uh Bohemian Rhapsody for which he won best editing in uh 2018 in the 2018 Oscars. This movie runs 2 hours and 13 minutes, oh, almost oh 30 minutes longer than the first one, but to be fair, there is a lot going on, and I don't feel like it drags. I feel like it's slow, but I don't think
1: it drags. Yeah. I don't think there are sections where I'm like, I would have gotten rid of this. Yeah. I think I would have sped the whole thing up. Yeah. But I feel like that might be the vibe they're going for, too. I'm just not sure if it's totally successful.
0: That's fair. That's fair. Uh, it was released May 3rd, 2003. And the budget on this movie was $125 million. Double the budget of the original. Double the budget of the original. And as we remember our handy-dandy formula, that means it needed to make $250 million to break even. Um, it made, I have the exact number here, uh, $407,711,549. <laughs> wow. Uh, at the Down box the office. Sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it, it did better than break even. Um Yeah. Another hit? Yeah, another hit. Uh, And so, Wade, what was your first experience with X2?
1: I saw this movie in cinemas. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the only movie I think... So we talked about this series being important to us as Mm -hmm. kids. This is the only movie in the series that I have nostalgia for. Okay. I watched the other two, but this was really the one that I watched a lot and really loved. Mm -hmm. I saw the first one on home video leading up to this, Mm -hmm. and then saw this one in theaters and saw it a bunch on home video, too.
0: Yeah, so this was the one to just, like, pop in whenever you wanted to watch a superhero movie, yeah? Yeah,
1: this one I definitely watched a lot. This movie and Spider-Man 2, which comes out the following year, were the two, like, superhero movies I would watch as a kid, and the original Superman the movie. Um, But, yeah, I had a lot of nostalgia for this watching it, and most of my... I feel like I watched the first one maybe two or three times as a kid. Mm-hmm. I watched the third one once, <laughs> and I would say I, I probably watched this one like close to ten times growing sure. up. Yeah, over the course of it. Right on. What was your first experience with this movie?
0: Um, so I watched it. I'm sure that I watched it uh, either at my cousin Charles's house or with him at my house um, when we were when I was doing the watch with him of all these the same year that the third one came out on um, this one was my favorite for a long time it probably still is my favorite uh, it was for a minute there like my favorite movie it has everything uh, and I think it's just like really engaging I can't say the exact first time that I saw it though but I uh, similarly to you I watched it over and over and over <laughs> as a kid So is this movie a flop or a bop, Wade?
1: I think this movie is a bop, bop, bop. Uh, I don't think it's the masterpiece that I thought it was as a kid Mm -hmm. or that it is sometimes regarded as. Mm -hmm. But I think it's leagues better than the first one. Yeah, I think that it's uh, going for a real atmosphere. I love sequels in general so much better than first films. Mm -hmm. I'm always like so annoyed by all the labor it takes to set up all the characters. Mm. It feels like, especially in these type of genre films that like the movie you want to see is always the last five minutes of yeah. the first film every mm. single time. Sure. So I just, in general with any type of movie prefer sequels. And I think it's so fun to watch the characters do something new. I love that they add new characters in this. Uh, I think there's a pretty compelling villain uh my criticisms top level criticisms of it are that i do think that it is too slow mm-hmm. and i think that the cgi does not hold up in a lot of sections but i think that it is like buoyed with some pretty good acting and some good practical effects that make it hold up today even though it does like definitely feel like a period piece hmm. watching it today like, it, like I would never be like, this is a modern movie. Sure. Um, but it is, watching it, which is funny because I loved it so much growing up, and watching it now, it's like, oh, this was like peak of that era of for filmmaking. For sure, for sure. This is like the dark second movie, but it also has the best action, which is why I think it's cool to kids, too. Like, the Nightcrawler scene, uh, the plane scene, the stuff at the end, like... That makes it interesting as a kid when you're not as into like the character explorations sure. and all of like the dark atmospheric stuff. I also was surprised at how like explicitly of a horror movie this is. Oh yeah, in some sequences. I like remember there being creepy stuff, but like watching it now, having seen a lot more of the films that were influencing it, I was pretty surprised by that. So, uh, Emmett, let me ask you about what you just said was your favorite
0: movie of all time for a while: flop or bop? I definitely think this one was a bop. No surprises there. Uh, I think that this one, like I said earlier, it has everything I loved as a kid, like getting magneto and mystique as semi good guys in this one Mm. i always thought that that was super cool like the idea of all of the x-men teaming up and like magneto who is so iconic and mystique as well who i've talked about my love for on the previous uh one so we don't need to get into all that here but uh it is like having both of them as a more heroic there's there's that i think there's like three or four sequences in this movie that are top of the line like great sequences starting with the nightcrawler invasion of the white house you have the magneto breaks out of the plastic prison which is incredible you have wolverine oh, yeah. fighting lady death strike and the the whole raid on the x mansion i said those out of order but the raid on the x mansion is also like a truly harrowing scene and really get to see good guy Wolverine in that, like fully coming into his role as like hero Wolverine in that scene.
1: This movie was originally rated R no. because of the raid on the X mansion. They were like, wow. they said they had to cut uh, just like a few seconds worth of shots that had at the R rating Wow, from some of the violence in that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is pretty graphic. A lot of people die. The uh, Nightcrawler scene
1: did not hold up for me. Which I was pretty surprised by because I watched these movies. I watched all of these movies uh, four years ago before Apocalypse. I showed them Mm -hmm. all to my little brother. Uh, And I kind of came into that rewatch being like, I love these movies as a kid. They're going to be so cool. Mm -hmm. And then he, having never seen them as a kid and coming to them as adults after watching all of the superhero movies today, Mm -hmm. uh, was not as impressed as I was being a little kid. But I remember still liking the sequence a lot then, and it just did not work for me now. I think it's like the effect is pretty strange, but it's like just so much jumping and it's less like orchestrated than I remembered last time. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't like hate it. I was just like, oh, I remember this being cool and I don't really think it's cool anymore.
0: I would have to say agree to disagree on that one because I think it still kicks ass when he comes through the door and like grabs the dude with his tail. It's incredible and kicking the dude in the face through the bulletproof glass is uh still mm. a power move.
1: I think the ending shot of like where the camera flips and it goes to the mutant freedom now is pretty cool.
0: Oh yeah
1: the cinematography is nothing really like groundbreaking but there are a couple like cool shots in this one mm-hmm. which i didn't really think there were any of in the first one
0: oh, that's true yeah it's pretty standard in that first one
1: also what about the um transition towards the beginning where it's like wolverine like yawning and then it transitions to an actual wolverine in the yeah, history in the museum
0: that's a little that one has always been like a little jakey to me i've been like what the hell but it is You know, I think they're hitting it a little hard on that one.
1: I found out doing my research that when they hired Jackman originally, Uh he spent like two weeks Mm -hmm. uh, copying the movement and studying the behavior of wolves because
0: he thought that Wolverine was based on wolves. Okay. He's from Australia. They don't have those there. (laughs) Is that not where Wolverines are from? Wolverines are from Canada. I guess whenever I
1: hear any sort of dangerous, exotic animal, I assume that it's from Australia.
0: No, no, no. They have other dangerous things that probably resemble wolverines there and it can kill you faster. But wolverines are definitely from like North America, like the Rockies and like Canada mm. area, I think. Because okay. you can see them at that really cool Columbus Zoo exhibit of like the North American animals. Oh, uh, right, They're right, by right. the Mies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have written here in my notes during this sequence of the uh, during the Nightcrawler sequence that I think it's really interesting that the human the like the human secret service see this monster attacking the president um, that can teleport. And I mean, like, obviously, in the moment, the only thing they're worried about is like, let's like kill this thing and like make sure it doesn't get the president. Right. But that afterwards, no one puts it together that, like, oh, if this guy really wanted to kill the president, he would have teleported to right behind the chair and slit the dude's throat. And I think that just, like, kind of... I mean, obviously, like, that's part of what the movie is about, is about, like, the prejudice against mutants being weaponized by somebody who hates mutants, using a mutant, like, would-be assassin against the president to instill a greater fear of mutants in the populace. But it is, like... Just a nod to how dumb the human government is that they don't, like, recognize that, that like, if you had the ability to teleport and you wanted to assassinate the president, you wouldn't spend all of your time kicking secret servicemen in the face before doing it. You know what I mean? Like, you'd just be in and out.
1: So you think this is part of Stryker's plan? Oh, That absolutely. he has to, like, try to kill oh, the yeah. president, but not do it so the president will pass the bill.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I don't think Stryker actually wants that president dead, because that president seems like a pretty like yeah, pretty, a pretty buddy buddy with him. Yeah, pretty buddy buddy, fairly conservative and willing to move in the same direction as him. So But Nightcrawler just gets shot. He doesn't
1: like he doesn't get to the end moment where he has the clear shot and then stop. He's about to kill him
0: and then he gets clipped and then he just dips out of there. Yes, but I also think that he wasn't going to do it. I don't see how that would help Stryker's agenda. Mm-hmm. And like, as we know, that it's part of like Stryker's plan. I don't know. I feel like a mutant killing the president would help his agenda. It might. It might. That's true. Between this movie, between the first movie and this movie, yep. Uh, like a pretty significant thing has happened in our country. That's 9-11. Um, the first movie came out in 2000. This movie came out in 2003. This movie is definitely about a terrorist threat. Yeah. Uh, I mean like X-Men it's, United. It's X Men United. Um it's about but it's like multi-layered. I think it does it better. I think the, the metaphors in the first one are a little heavier handed. Um and in this one it's like there's layers to it in a way because they're using the military is using a terrorist attack on the president as an excuse for their existence, which is a pretty nuanced view of of that in 2003 Mm -hmm. um to have that view also in 2000 in 2003 um 2001 of course uh george w bush invaded uh afghanistan and then he did the same he invaded iraq in march of 2003 so this is this movie comes out like right on the tail end of that the invasion of iraq like, they they declared the end of major combat operations in Iraq on May 1st, 2003, two days before this movie came out. Wow. And, of course, as uh, history will let you know, uh, the occupation of Iraq by U.S. forces lasted until withdrawal in 2011. Uh, and I believe there are still some forces over there uh, because of a resurgence of ISIS and all this other stuff. We don't have to get into all that. But the point is, this movie is like playing with those ideas about terrorism and like does one bad acting action by a single member of this group condemn this whole group which is definitely what striker is trying to get the government to do it's complicated by the fact that william Stryker is of course behind that attack to begin with uh but i think it's very rich and i think once again it plays like really well like the metaphorical stuff in this plays a lot better than the cgi holds up you know what i mean like it holds up story-wise better than it does action-wise
1: yeah i have a quote about that brian singer uh cited the need for a human villain on this one uh saying that he wanted to study quote the human perspective the kind of blind rage that feeds into warmongering and terrorism yeah. so that was I mean clearly very explicitly on their minds I also thought there was like a little bit of commentary on private prisons mm. uh, oh, yeah. especially in the scene between like the president and Kelly and Stryker where he talks about like how they own how he made the prison and therefore he has like control of the prisoners uh-huh. um, which I also think is I like a little bit really of a nuanced take for 2003 for sure there's also uh, a lot of police brutality in this movie in yeah. the one scene where the cops show up yep um and that scene is also kind of a microcosm of the thing with the president too i feel like where it's like the majority calls the police on the minority and then like end up having their false beliefs proven correct yeah because of the escalation that the police do in that scenario
0: that's interesting um
1: i did think that at the end like the suggestion That the U.S. government would be complicit in some way in keeping a lot of children in cages in some far off place. Doesn't seem reasonable. A little too far fetched. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like it went a little too far that time. Yeah. That would never happen.
0: Yeah. Uh, Moving on. (laughs) Moving right along here. Uh, So one of the things I love about this movie Mm -hmm. uh, are the blue people. We've already discussed my love of blue people. I love blue people. Whatever uh, series we watch
1: next, there will be no, no brightly colored people in it. No blue people. No green people. Especially not any shapely aliens. You think not? I promise. Damn. Whatever one we watch immediately after this
0: will not have those. Okay. Because I love, I love Alan, friggin' coming. As Nightcrawler in this, yeah, um, an alum of a school that you attended,
1: yeah, the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. And they have all these things up for him. Um, he also is coming right off of Spy Kids in this, no pun intended. Uh, so he's really at like the height of it. I thought there was a lot of uh, his performance as the MC in Cabaret that seeped into this, another German character. Uh, another kind of like fun philosophical character, mm. which he had been playing on and off for thirty years. I wonder how much of that character like led to his casting, but I do think the casting is spot on. Yeah,
0: he's so good in this.
1: I was surprised. I had the same feeling about him in this movie as I did about Rogue in the first movie, mm. where I was like, "Oh, I think about this being their movie, but they're actually only in like four scenes." Yeah. and I think that is a testament to how much of an impression he leaves. Right. With it's, the stuff that he gets to do. He
0: really like steals most of the scenes that he is in. Yeah. Um, and it's him and Mystique in this movie do a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, he's essential to Stryker's plot and then comes over to the good side and becomes part, one of the X-Men. Mystique here, uh, if you'll remember from the last movie, Magneto's in this plastic prison and Mystique is the only one who escapes of his henchmen. Of The the whole Brotherhood of Mutants is down to one uh mystique yeah and down from five down from five. so perhaps <laughs>
1: yeah. not as dramatic
0: a, a fraction as the name would suggest right right but she masterminds this whole plot to get him out uh she shoots up the dude with extra iron in his blood and has one of the gruesomest deaths in an in any x-men when oh, the dude man. gets the blood ripped out of him and ian mckellen escapes um, but really, she's just she's doing a lot. She also, as Senator Robert Kelly, famed uh, mutant hater from the X Men from the original X Men movie, uh, she puts up at least some amount of defense against the raid, the planned raid on the X Mansion. She's like, "Don't do that. There's kids there. It's a school." Uh, which is interesting, given her role as like a major antagonist in the previous movie. It's really interesting what they're doing with. But like I said, like I enjoy watching uh, Ian McKellen and Mystique being the like coming into the team as good guys. Mm-hmm. But there, there's a lot of hatchet burying going on in this film, like between them, and especially between Rogue, who if like let us not let us not forget. They tried to kill. They had a plan that was going to involve her being
1: dead. Oh yeah, and in this movie, they're like the mean girls out of here talking about <laughs> what what their assassination attempt did to her hair. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they're like laughing in the corner. A pretty classic a little moment. chatty caffies. Yeah, I think it's really cool at the start of this to see Mystique get to be like working of her own volition. Mm-hmm. I think it shows that because she her role. Like is basically lead henchman. Yeah, you know that is she's like the lead henchman to the bad guy. So it's cool that when he's away in prison, she like of her own volition mm-hmm. goes and breaks him out. Yeah, the Senator Kelly thing is neat too. I think that actor Bruce Davison is uh, really talented as playing Mystique, playing Senator Kelly, yeah. and really had me wondering like the implications of that. Like, does his wife? know he's dead oh, like is weird. it a full-time job impersonating that guy do his kids know he's dead like is she 24 7 playing senator kelly or does senator kelly just show up to court <laughs> once a month when the mutants are being talked about and then hmm. misses every other day the that's, Senate? A, that's a great question it has
0: only been like two weeks yeah it hasn't been too long So clearly so maybe she maybe she really has just been doing that for two weeks until she can figure out what her plan to get Magneto free is. There's also a scene in this movie that
1: was like pretty shocking to me where Mystique just tries to sleep with Wolverine. Yeah, it's not plot motivated. It's not foreshadowed in any of their scenes before or after. No. I mean, there's a little bit of chemistry, but there's no, nothing about a relationship between them. There's just a scene where Mystique comes into his tent and tries to sleep with Wolverine and says, like, this is what I want. Yeah. What do you want?
0: Yeah, and then shows herself as, I mean, she starts it sh- pretending to be Jean Grey. Yeah. But then she shows, she shows him Storm, also Rogue. Oh, I didn't I didn't catch
1: that. I didn't catch who the people were. Yeah. I thought I'm she was just sure shifting bodies. I thought it was Storm and Rogue. No, I'm the sure other it two. is, if that's what you saw. I wasn't paying
0: Uh and then of course very creepily turns into William Stryker. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, that part is creepy. But I say get it. <laughs> I'm 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 here for it. Like look. Look. Okay. <laughs> oh no. Magneto. And her probably are they
1: in a relationship? I had
0: that question throughout this movie. I think they, I think
1: they are. There's certainly some weird like master servant dynamics there. But um, there's this scene where where like Wolverine says like she's pretty incredible, and McKellen is like, oh, you have no idea.
0: Well, speaking of him, he was reading a a book that is very important to me, uh, the Once and Future King, uh, which is also. This movie was my favorite movie for a long time. That book has been and probably will be, again, my favorite book. Uh, It is the story of King Arthur. And it's a really interesting version. It's like a a version written in the 1940s and 50s that is directly correlated with, like, fascism. And um, it's about, like, it's about King Arthur, but it's also about, like the global slide towards fascism in the thirties. And if he's reading it, it's just a very, it's like a very strange thing because on the one hand he is like, he is a would be dictator or at Mm -hmm. least a would be, I think he sees himself as a liberator of the mutants, but he obviously also is willing to kill the entire rest of humanity. So his, angle into that is very is very strange but that book also comes up at the end of the movie and Patrick Stewart is promoting it to the kids and I there's something in it like there's something to all of that and I'm not really sure what exactly it is but there's a reason they're both reading it
1: Watching these movies is like a little tapestry of all your personality traits coming together. It's really revealing so much about you to me. Last week we learned that you have modeled your entire adult appearance on Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. And then today I found that the once and future King, a very pivotal part of Um, your entire thing, comes from this movie. Uh, This movie is also directly tied to uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, yeah. Uh, Here's a quote from producer Tom DeSanto. Envisioned X2 as the film series equivalent to The Empire Strikes Back and that all the characters are, quote, all split apart and then dissected, and revelations occur that are significant. The romance comes to fruition and a lot of things happen. So beyond that somewhat vague (laughs) summary, I think that this movie massively cribs from the Empire Strikes Back playbook in a way that it does it much more successful than, say, The Lego Movie 2 or almost any other Mm -hmm. sequel that tries to take from Empire Strikes Back. But it does the thing where, like, the heroes that were all together in the last one mm-hmm. are split up in little tiny pockets on mm-hmm. side journeys. It does the thing where you have, like, long takes that are just of character interactions, like no plot. But mm-hmm. we just spend some time seeing jokes or seeing emotions, how characters react to things. Mm-hmm. I think the music is very
0: evocative. Yeah. yeah. Of Empire Strikes You're Back. you that, that dreamy, Yeah, weird some quality. of
1: that incidental music, especially... Obviously, the romance is, I would say, a smaller part of this than Empire. I think that Empire leans on kind of like the genre constructions of romance, and this leads on the genre constructions of horror a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But the actual, like, Jean Grey Wolverine scene in the movie Mm -hmm. is, like, hugely reminiscent of the closet scene with Han and Leia, where they, like, finally confront their um feelings and one of them is like very weirdly forceful when you watch it back today um yeah so yeah i think and that this movie ends on like a major character death it ends with the characters flying away Mm
0: -hmm. um there's also all those times they can't fly the thing when they're trying to yeah exactly exactly yeah
1: yeah so i think in terms of tone even kind of like the fact that it's all in this like endless maze of a bunker. It's pretty similar to Cloud City. Uh, yeah.
0: And we do get like the matchup that we want at the end of this movie in a way that you don't like at the end of the, the first X-Men. Like the matchup between Wolverine and Sabretooth, not that cool. The matchup between Wolverine and Lady Deathstrike, it gives you what you want it like it is what the people asked for.
1: Yeah, another example of a superhero versus superhero thing that I just like where it's like the exact same power. Yeah. Um this one is shot pretty cool. It was very clear to me that Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon had come out between the first movie and this movie in terms of that character being there and how they shot her. <laughs> but I thought she was pretty
0: cool. Uh yeah, she is Yeah, I mean it's interesting you say that like of having the exact same power. It is a weakness in a lot of superhero movies, but I also think about like think about this being like maybe the first one that did it that way.
1: Well, I think it's more uh exciting than when we get it in the first X-Men film where it's literally Wolverine fighting himself as Mystique. Yeah, yeah. You wanna talk a little bit about Stryker? Um <laughs> I think, okay, let me say this. First of all, I think that Brian Cox is amazing in this role. He is incredible. Um, So I don't say this to slight him, uh, but was Philip Seymour Hoffman busy? <laughs> because that role is pretty clearly written for him. I found nothing in my research about it, but just watching it, I was like, this is something really? that Brian Cox got like a chance to flex in because Philip Seymour Hoffman was doing something else. Was he that guy then? I think so. Okay. I think so. I mean, I think this is like two or three years before Mission Impossible 3, where he plays the same character.
0: Oh, okay. I've never Um, seen the Mission Impossible movies, so.
1: Well, I think you might sometime soon. (laughs) No blue people in those. Uh, So let me give you a little backstory here. Uh, This is one of the rare superhero movies that is directly adapted from a specific line in the comics. Mm -hmm. Um, Normally, they're just kind of like generally inspired by original stories. This movie is based on the 1982 graphic novel, God Loves, Man Kills, which is written by Chris Claremont and illustrated by Brent Anderson. Uh, in it, Reverend William Stryker oh, that's great. is a fire and brimstone preacher uh, who, when his wife gives birth to a mutant, mm-hmm. kills his wife and newborn son oh, that's, because he hates mutants so much. That
0: is so much better than what happens in this movie.
1: Then he um, kidnaps the professor and hooks him up to like a similar mutant locating machine and the story is about just Magneto teaming up with the X-Men to find him and rescue Charles. Okay. In it William Stryker has no connection to Wolverine whatsoever. Oh, oh interesting. And I didn't know this but uh that's also the way it is in the comics and Always was and still is. He's like, in t- that thing is like entirely a movie thing.
0: That he's in charge of the Weapon X program. Yes.
1: So Wolverine is still created by Weapon X uh-huh. in the comics. Right. Um, but William Stryker has nothing to do with that whatsoever.
0: Interesting. You know, see this, and this is kind of what I, this is what I was talking about earlier off cast of we, of like the humanized villain. And you were making fun of me because I don't like a humanized villain. Um, mm-hmm. And we see this striker as a humanized villain because of the tragedy that befell him with his wife. But that guy is so much scarier. A preacher who believes an ideology enough to kill his wife and child, that is, like, that's the fear that I want. Like, I want, and that lines up so much more with the whole terrorism thing, too, Mm -hmm. than the... Uh, both warm, like on either side, the warmonger and the terror, like, and the terrorist, um, of that ideologically driven rather than personal tragedy driven. I feel like so many of these characters we have to like, especially now we have to get this backstory about how, you know, how they had a loved one die in some tragic way. Like the guy from civil war, his family was killed by the Avengers. Uh, so he has to kill like he has to kill off the avengers mm-hmm. but like somebody who is just believes it so much that he would kill his own family is to me like that's just as compelling it's not humanizing like we can just hate that guy but it's still compelling uh and i'm i'm excited about that
1: yeah um I agree with what you're saying there. I like villains that are characters, and I think that's certainly more exciting for actors. Uh, and we see Brian Cox has a lot of fun here. He does have a lot of fun in this. But movie. I do agree with what you're saying. I think the first one, which is like mainly a queer metaphor, is much more successful and thorough in that than this one is as a terrorism metaphor, mm-hmm. certainly because it's like a closer subject and a smaller subject, perhaps, mm-hmm. to the creators than all of terrorism is. Um, Brian Cox is obviously like now the lead actor in Succession, which is like the most popular TV series in the world. Never heard post Game of, of Thrones. <laughs> um, Wait, Game of. So, uh, I knew that he was like wildly famous now. But uh, I found out that then he was most known for Braveheart and The Long Kiss Goodnight. Oh, wow. And the year before this came out, in 2002, mm-hmm. he was in The Rookie, The Trials of Henry Kissinger, <laughs> Bug, adapted from the Tracy Let's Play, oh, wow. The Ring, another movie that's a big ad- uh, influence on this, Damn. Charlie Kaufman's magnum opus adaptation, and The Born Identity wow so he was
0: clearly like right now like on fire yeah he was it at that time when, yeah when, uh, have you seen the born identity because I, I have he is he playing a i watched character? those as kids too
1: yeah yeah, yeah he's playing not the- not as um immediately villainous but yeah yeah kind of like the like uh middle-aged like example of diplomatic evil
0: oh i love it i love diplomatic evil Do you want to talk a little bit about this film's reputation alongside Spider-Man 2? You spoke to it a little bit earlier.
1: Yeah. um, We mentioned this on last week's podcast, too. So this film came out in 2003. Spider-Man 2 comes out in 2004. Both of them were very well reviewed. Mm -hmm. Um, Although not like this. was. Everyone wasn't like this is a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. But they were like, this is a good movie. Mm -hmm. which was pretty rare for superhero movies then. Yeah. Uh, And I think that there are like a contingent of people who I'm not going to make fun of again this week who have like the attitude that this movie and Spider-Man two are like the best superhero movies ever made. Some of the best movies ever made so much better than all the superhero movies that came after. If there is something in these movies beyond just nostalgia beyond just like i was the right age for it then and i'm the wrong age for it now Mm -hmm. what is it that separates these movies from all the great movies we get today
0: okay having never seen the second spider-man all the way through i can't speak to that okay but i do think and this may be disproven upon further inspection of the mcu specifically and i think that's what you're talk like when we talk about other superhero movies i feel like a lot of what we're talking about is the mcu yeah. um com- well they
1: sent they set the style guide for the
0: other superhero movies now comprehensibility is like i know what's going on in this movie um and once again the arc of this movie is just this movie like the arc resolves within this movie i don't have to wait for like a two part thing or a four-part thing where it says you you where you we say we're a two-part thing but really if you don't watch the three other movies around it you have to understand it so like that is that's my argument for
1: it. i mean this film does end on a cliffhanger that the next movie is about
0: it does but that's not what this movie is about yeah this movie is not like this movie hints at the phoenix thing but it is not about that it is about the william Stryker thing and that plot is resolved by the end of this
1: i think that's what most mcu movies do too okay it's tough for me to think of a movie where that's not the case where like the main
0: point of the movie isn't resolved in the movie uh also this has its like it is different from the first one it has like a different style Uh uh-huh which is fun and yeah. i feel like a lot of those are pretty homogenous um i am i'm am purposefully making the argument for this movie you you know? uh-huh. like a better exa- like a better example of the difference might be like this this movie feels to me like we're still talking about a personal problem like we're still talking about Wolverine's problem and yes like we're talking about like killing off all of the mutants but we have actual mutants that we care about that we see it happen to like in the moments when they're in pain. And those are the ones we really care about. We care about those mutants and we care about like the 15 kids that they have in, in the cage. Right. We're not like super concerned with, we're not like thinking, having to think globally while watching a team of basically invincible people fight the big bad. We're watching a team of very vulnerable people uh, fight the big bad, and they are, like, representative of the population that's being threatened. Um, In those other movies, it's like the whole universe is going to end, or, like, half the people in the world, like, in the entire universe are going to be snapped out of existence. Mm -hmm. That's That's not something that you can actually, like... You can think about it as being like, oh, that's bad. But you can't like emotionally attach yourself to that. And especially not like with the snap stuff, they do a little bit better job because you see like Peter Parker get drifted in Yeah, it's all characters you care about. It's characters you care about. Although, again, I would say like if you've only been watching that movie, you don't care about all of those people as much. Like if you were to take it by itself instead of watching the 20 movies that come before. I don't know why you would watch that movie without watching the 20 movies that come before. But again, I do think it's a flaw if it's a movie that you can only watch if you've watched the 20 movies that come be- Like, only be emotionally invested in the last act if you've watched the 20 movies that's come before. And with this, I feel like you could get emotionally invested in those characters within the s- span of this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't, we don't know the backstory on that kid who can blink, you know, and stuff. But I don't need to. Like, that one scene of him was enough to get emotionally invested in him. Mm -hmm. And, like, now if he dies, or, like, the kid with the blue tongue, like, if they die, I don't need to know 15 movies back his backstory. Mm -hmm. Like, that movie is enough. So, that would be my argument for, like, these movies are in some ways aiming lower um, and, like, making it more real that way.
1: Okay. Okay. I think it's illustrative to me in this discussion which MCU films you have seen and which you have not. Well, that's very true. I do think that you are correct that this film is more successful than the first one, which is like going for a superhero film. Right. And I think a lot of the early films in the MCU are going for the superhero genre Mm -hmm. where it's like someone has to be – on top of a building trying to end the world. Yeah. And I think, like, it is to this film's great credit that it doesn't go for that. Yeah. Um, And hopefully we never have to see that in this series again since they seem to uh, <laughs> have figured it out this time. I do think this movie has a little bit of the Wrath of Khan problem, too, okay. which does not take away from it itself. But I think the shadow of this movie lays heavy on the rest of the series Yeah, in that they spend, like, far too long and make, like, far too unnecessary narrative decisions trying to recreate this movie yes i would just say my opinion and it may be wrong of those people who like hold these movies in hollow ground is that they probably haven't seen them in a while because i think these entries hold up better than other entries but like i don't think that the best of the early X-Men and Spider-Man movies are better than the very best of superhero movies today I actually don't really think they're close and I feel like it's like a mixture of nostalgia and like having not really revisited it through the eyes of a modern viewer today I think this movie kind of lacks a really clear narrative thread there are like a lot of different strings being pulled and i think that comes with like part of like the slow pacing issue mm-hmm. the fact that we like get to the final battle of this movie an hour and 20 minutes into it when there are still 50 oh, minutes yeah, left that is a little weird this is kind of the opposite of the first movie where i can tell you what the plot is mm-hmm. but i'm not sure i could tell you very clearly what it's about like, I'm not sure I could as succinctly tell you the story, and I certainly right. don't think that, like, propels it forward at every turn.
0: Yeah, they don't really nail the everybody coming back together. Oh, like, yeah, they, that's true. They nail the, like, oh, let's have other everybody do separate things, but the coming together feels rushed, but then the final battle, like you said, starts w- way early. Yeah. Also, what Wolverine is doing is pretty is still pretty unattached from what everyone else is doing. Like up until the last ten minutes. Yeah. Like even once they get to the underground bunker, he like runs off to have his own showdown, Mm -hmm. which is different than what everyone else is there to do.
1: Yeah, which is kind of an empire thing too. Do you Uh, think Wolverine is still the protagonist of this film? Ugh. It's tough for me because I don't necessarily see a clear argument for it, but I'm not sure there's anyone else it would be other than maybe Professor X. Yeah,
0: that's what I was going to like. The only other person you could think of is maybe Professor X, but he doesn't change.
1: Who changes?
0: Well, let's like, really think about this. Okay. Like, who is okay. the one who has to change at the end to overcome the
1: obstacle? Jean Grey.
0: Yeah, I mean, Jean Grey sacrifices herself. It's oh, like, not much of a change. And it's also she's not in enough of this movie to be... Actually, you know what? Okay, it could be Nightcrawler. Okay, okay, let's hear it. Because he's like, oh, I can't, like, go into, I can't, like, teleport places that I can't see. Yeah, and Storm is like, Storm is like, you've got to have faith, which ties back into his whole character thing. And then he does, and then he teleports into the room and saves, like, saves everybody.
1: Yeah, I think it could also be that Wolverine turns down the chance to learn more about his history. Like, I think that moment is probably the change where he's holding the kid from the Uh X-Mansion. Stryker is there still alive. Mm -hmm. And Stryker is like, who's going to tell you more? Who's going to give you those answers? That he kind of has been looking... Well, he at least starts the movie off in Canada looking for answers to his past. Yeah, who he is. And Stryker is like, I have the answers right here. And then he's like, I'm going to choose this other life. Yeah. Like, I'm going to choose this life I have over finding out whatever it was going on in the past. Yeah. So, I guess maybe that is the change of the movie. What would you say he wants then? Well, I think he wants throughout the course of the movie to... Ooh,
0: he Well, he wants to know, he wants to dig deeper into his past and like figure out where he comes from mm-hmm. and like, who he is. And he keeps asking the professor, like, when are you going to do this? and really the thing that he wants he thinks everybody's just going on a quick like two day vacation and leaving him in charge of the kids and then all of a sudden like the like it really hits the fan yeah w- during the raid and all of a sudden like what he wants is no longer the most important thing cuz Cause even cause even in the raid he wants to go with striker he's like he says to rogue like Don't worry about me. I'll be fine. And she says, but we won't. Yeah. Like, you have to come with us. Mm -hmm. And so, like, the whole movie is kind of that, like, the struggle between those two things. Like, does he stay and protect the people or does he, like, go and find out more about his past?
1: Yeah. I definitely agree. That's his arc in terms of, like, the two things that he's torn between. I'm not sure if he has as clean of a, like, forward momentum
0: objective
1: throughout the whole movie yeah. as he did in the
0: first. It's trickier. But then again, like the plot is clearer. Or if not clearer, at least better.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the plot is certainly better.
0: And it is clear. It's clear enough. Like you can follow the plot. Well, um speaking about the plot,
1: mm-hmm. so this movie started uh getting made soon after the first one. Uh-huh. David Hayter and Zach Penn who is the writer of Ants, Inspector Gadget, and Charlie's Angels, another guy who was working a lot that at the time, uh, were commissioned to write dueling drafts. So they each wrote their own draft for what a sequel to X-Men would be. Weird. And then they themselves combined the parts that they thought were best into one single draft. Okay. Which is like not that uncommon of a process in Hollywood, I think that it is fairly uncommon for the writers themselves to be the ones who pick and choose what works. Sometimes this will also happen where they'll just be like, whoever has the best draft gets to write the movie. So then that first draft, combined draft, was rewritten by Michael Darity and Dan Harris, who are a writing team who hadn't done much of the time, but uh, are now doing kind of the latter-day Godzilla movies. Oh, okay. Um, and they also wrote the modern-day Christmas classic Krampus, hmm. which I hope we'll talk about one day. The third rewrite happened after Halle Berry won her Oscar in early 2002 for her work in 2001's Monster Ball. Uh, they did a whole rewrite of the script that was just to give Storm something to do in this movie <laughs> oh because they sure didn't do it in the first one. No, they didn't. She is at least
0: talking within the first 10 minutes of this movie. She's a much bigger... She feels like part of the team in this one. Yes, she really does. I
1: think the whole team feels like they're doing more in general. Like, it felt Except like... Except for Cyclops. <laughs> oh, man. Let's talk about Cyclops. He's in, like, two scenes at the beginning? He, yeah. Like, he's in maybe two. Then he's gone maybe. for
0: at least an hour. Uh, closer to an hour and a half, probably. Yeah.
1: And then he shows up and does, like, some... At best, questionable crying faces and noises over Jeans Grey's death. So one of his plot lines, I don't know what it was. I Mm -hmm. couldn't find it out by looking for it. But there was another plot line of what Cyclops was doing this whole movie that was filmed and then cut in the editing bay. Oh, wow. uh, Which the writer David Hader spoke out about, saying he was upset that James Marsden didn't have more screen time in this. Yeah. Also, that were in the script but weren't filmed, kept for budget reasons, were Angel... Beast, Sabertooth, returning again, uh-huh. The Danger Room, that so thing get- they keep coming back to, and uh, Sentinels. Wow. We're all a part of this on Wait. the page, and then we're cut by Fox
0: because they didn't have the budget. And they didn't want to make a four-hour movie. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if there were Sentinels in this?
1: Yeah, it's hard to think of where they would fit into this plot specifically.
0: Yeah, we do get a Hank McCoy, a Dr. Hank McCoy um, cameo on the tv in the scene right before mystique gets the guy in the bathroom
1: yeah played by an actor who is not fraser crane
0: the guy who will play him in in In, uh, x-men the last Last Stand. yeah um just a couple other well uh, other team member things Mm -hmm. you wanted to say were there any other i love the stuff with iceman and and pyro yeah i did want to talk about uh, that stuff that was my favorite
1: as a kid like that's the thing that i remember loving as a Mm -hmm. kid is like Iceman and Pyro were like the coolest thing. Yeah. I like their kind of like uh, – now I look at it as very Stranger Things-esque where you have like the teen plot line and you have the cool character who's stuck babysitting them. Yeah. Um. But I love all of their stuff. I think <laughs> the actor playing Pyro is like teetering on the edge between doing an amazing job and, like, being very silly. Yeah. I He's certainly, like, not given Oscar-level material here. Sure. I'm not trying to um, poke any fun at him. He just has, like, a very, like, earnest baby face, and he's wearing these, like, 2000s checkerboard vans oh, with yeah. the bell with,
0: like, the boot-cut jeans, sweatpants, and everything. He doesn't have a family, and he's very sad about it. <laughs> but yeah i love all of their stuff i just have a couple of like my takes here from while i was watching it okay let's I hear think, them i think are good uh dude they shot a kid in the throat in this movie yeah that kid who blinks whose only power is to blink and change the tv yeah. channel the little mutant kid who looks just like harry potter gets shot in the throat which is just wild But then he gets rescued, I believe, by Colossus. And we do stand a Peter Rasputin over here. Yeah. Um, He's not Russian in this movie. He's all-American and a total hunk. But we stand a Peter Rasputin, and I cannot wait to see him in later installments.
1: He has a pretty notable cameo in this, I would say. Yeah, I would say so. Like, he's
0: not in a ton of it, but I would say he leaves a big impression. For sure, because he turns a metal and throws some dudes through a wall. It's exciting. This movie is sponsored by Mazda. Um, the sports car that they hop in—the coolest sports car <laughs> in the whole X Mansion—is Cyclops's little Mazda. Roddy, dude, Cyclops has all the cool toys and none of the cool attitude. And none of the cool attitude. Uh, in that same scene, Wolverine hates InSync. <laughs> yes, that is his a very Kirktonite. 2003 moment. We've got uh, Bobby's little brother Ronnie. He sucks.
1: Ronnie is a sucker. He's a snitch. Yeah, we do not like we Ronnie. Hate Ronnie. We hate Ronnie. Ronnie is the real villain of this movie, dude, if, if I had
0: to pick one, dude, honestly, if okay, if Ronnie hadn't called the cops, one, Wolverine wouldn't have gotten shot in the head by the friggin' pigs. Oh yeah. And two, they wouldn't got they wouldn't have gotten blown out of the air by the air force either yeah because that's all because of the stuff that pyro does later
1: and it immediately backfires on them because you see the police coming in and like roughing all up on the family yeah so then i was like okay i'm glad they're gonna get their kabummets but then it just ends with them like staring from the top window in the suburbs like yeah smugly
0: as the superheroes oh, run away little uh little we got, got nothing ronnie good to say got about nothing ronnie. good to say about ronnie love the actress the actress's line delivery for um have you tried not being a mutant yeah (laughs) one of the iconic lines that i remembered even as a kid i got what that one meant she's Um, so good that scene is the only scene that's really like playing in the playground the first movie is but does it pretty well oh the stuff with jason it reminds me like especially when he's like he turns into the little girl and like is taking (laughs) professor actually the empty mansion totally Uh creepy Super creepy. It's like a couple different you said horror, but it's a couple different kinds of horror in this movie. Like it's important to note there's there's body horror, there's like the creepy kid horror. Yep. There's like the house invasion horror. There's a lot of different oh yeah. There's a lot of different genres of it going on. But that part specifically reminded me strangely here of the little Voldemort kid on this platform. 9 and 3 quarters in like the death scene in the 7th one. Oh, okay. Um I don't know exactly, but like the the weird little eh, yeah. It was it creeps me that scene always creeps me out. Also, Jean Grey and Cyclops are married? Yeah, I wrote that down too. She mentions
1: it isn't explicit, but she mentions like you you flirt with the bad guy, but you marry the good guy. No, here's what she says.
0: She okay. says you flirt with the bad boy, but you don't take him home. Something, something, something. We are married, Logan. <laughs> Is that actually does she actually say we are married? I'm pretty damn sure. <laughs> okay. Or at least I married him or something. Like, yeah. They are. They are married. Well, I mean, they share a room. I mean, I guess that's the only way they could and it not be an R rating. They look like mid-30s. Like, they yeah. look, I'm, it's
1: interesting. I don't know how much people want to get into this. How do you feel at top level about the decision to, like, look at the whole house of X-Men characters? Mm-hmm. This was a decision not just made in this film, okay, uh, but made in the last film. But, like, to say, like, some of these characters are adults. yeah. Who are a little older than leads of these kinds of movies normally are, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And like the other ones are kids. You know, like Kitty Pride is like 11. Yeah. Or Jubilee or stuff. Like taking like some of them and making them like young students and then taking the others and making them like older adults.
0: Well, I think it was probably a very conscious decision knowing that they wanted to later make, like, a boatload of these movies. Uh Uh-huh. Like, I think the assumption... I would, like, assume that the assumption was, we're going to need other recognizable characters from the comics to grow up and be X-Men in another ten years. And, like, we we want to, like, have them be in the same continuity. Why did they make the certain choices that they made? And, like... Those are not necessarily the team members that you would have be it. And also, like, at the beginning of the first movie, it's, like, just Jean Grey, Storm, and Cyclops are the only three adults, right? I don't think Um, there's any other. There's no other adult teacher there. Yeah, yep. Which also seems like, I don't know, that looks like a very big school.
1: Not a lot of variety in the classroom, it looks like.
0: Yeah, you've got the three of them and Professor X. Mm Mm-hmm. It is like pretty small. I don't know why you would Maybe have there are some adjuncts. Two more. Yeah, we we like some see. human adjuncts like Maura McTaggart or someone who comes in and, mm. uh, and does something.
1: Uh, you mentioned Jean Grey. Mm-hmm. Another parallel to Empire Strikes Back is that her death in this was highly secretive. It wasn't told to any of the cast or crew. Whoa. Uh, and they didn't tell Famke Jansen until halfway through filming wow. that she was going to die in this one. That's cool. Um, which is very similar to on The Empire Strikes Back. They never told anyone that Vader was Luke's father. Oh. The line in the script was, um, is that Darth Vader says, no, Obi-Wan killed your father. And that's what David Prouse, the actor in the suit for Darth Vader, said on that day. Wow. And on that day, like right before the take happened, uh, Irvin Kershner came to Mark Hamill and said, He's going to say Obi-Wan killed your father, but I just want you to react as though he said I am your father. And that's, that's so like cool. all that they had. So
0: Dude, that is Hamill's best acting in the entire series. He's so series. good. I he's, think he's
1: really good and actually I think in all four that he's in he's yeah, I, really good. I, I do think he's I Think he's crystal clear at all times. I think he's
0: quite good. Uh and it takes a lot to sell all the weirdness. Yeah. In those movies. For sure. Uh this
1: movie was pretty well received when it came out. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to read a snippet of Roger Ebert's review. As oh, I yes. did Last week, I've been enjoying reading yeah, the Sass Master Ebert, mm-hmm. all of his retro reviews. He was actually pretty positive about this, but this is the last paragraph. of it. Uh-huh. X2, X-Men United, lacks a beginning, a middle, and an end, <laughs> and exists more as a self-renewing loop. In that, it is faithful to comic books themselves, which month after month and year after year seem frozen in the same fictional universe. Yes, there are comics in which the characters age and their worlds change, but the X-Men seem likely to continue forever, demonstrating their superpowers in one showcase scene after another. Perhaps in their next generation, a mutant will appear named Scribbler who can write a better screenplay for them.
0: Holy hell. (laughs) That is hot. (laughs) Uh, okay oh, in man. talking about uh other movies of the time yeah i just want to read off the other top gro- the top grossing films of 2003 hit me um uh, i just want to before i say this i want to say that only one of these films um has not is either is not either a sequel or the beginning of a franchise which i think is reflective of the mess that this movie and Spider-Man started.
1: Yeah. Um. Because when we read that list from 2000, X-Men was the only film on it that was part of a franchise and the only film that wasn't like a one-off drama for adults to watch. Yeah. Other than Dinosaur. And
0: this is almost entirely like, these aren't kids movies exactly, but they are franchise movies and they're headed in that direction. Yeah. So let me hit you. Hit me. Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Oh, wow. Um, Which made... One point one four billion with a B at the box office and was only the second movie to ever cross the billion mark. Wow. Um the after first Titanic being after Titanic. Um it also won that year for best uh best at the Academy Awards. Yeah, um, best and picture. like yeah, and, and like twelve other things or mm-hmm. something. Um second, Finding Nemo. Hmm. The Matrix reloaded. Oh wow! Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, Bruce Almighty, which I think is parts of has a franchise because uh, there's an Evan Almighty. Se- yeah, is it's either has the sequel, a sequel
1: or has a sequel. I think Evan is the sequel.
0: Um, The Last Samurai, the wow. only one that's not yeah. a franchise. Uh huh. T Terminator Three: Rise of the Machines. Wow. Get this: The Matrix Three revolutions in the same year. Whoa! Yeah. That's isn't that, wild. Isn't
1: that wild? How?
0: Exactly how? How? I, I, I mean, think, I'm sure they were made at the same
1: time, but, like, how did they put them out in the same year? Yeah,
0: right? Uh, X2 in number nine, the exact same spot as X1. Interesting. Although it made, as we said earlier, a boatload more. Yeah, I made And more. then Bad Boys 2. Wow. As number 10.
1: Wow. Uh, the uh, predecessor to this year's Best Picture winner, Bad, <laughs> Bad Boys <laughs> for Boys. Life. Incredible. <laughs> uh um. Yeah. So that's interesting. The Bechdel test, which is another one of these weekly segments, mm-hmm. this film does pass, although not with flying colors. I'm not trying to yeah applaud it, but it sends off uh Storm and Jean Grey on like their own mission, which Nightcrawler gets brought into, mm-hmm. and they have like a few lines together, which yeah. are not about one of the several men they're normally talking about. Yeah. I think there are two separate occurrences with that, and then also and them talking to a female pilot later so this movie does pass it which is pretty rare for this genre Mm -hmm. although i would say the manner it passes is very similar to other films in the genre that do pass it it is not like a
0: not like an in-depth conversation between them about like being mutants for instance like the the hate and prejudice they face as being mutants which could be very interesting Uh uh-huh but apparently halle berry can only have those scenes with men but
1: Wolverine's so hot. Why would uh, why would the women not spend all of their time only talking about Wolverine? <laughs> uh and we also have the body count, um, yes. which, as I
0: alluded to earlier, what is, was the
1: body count for uh, last week's? It was six.
0: Wow. Uh, and only like and only three of those were named characters. And apparently, if you say that Sabretooth was supposed to be in a draft of this movie, then we can actually drop that to five and say that Sabretooth didn't actually die. But I don't know. That's that's sketchy. It looks like he died in the first He could have come back. He probably couldn't could've come back. risen from the dead. Maybe. Yeah, but I guess as it is, the Sabretooth went extinct. Yep. <laughs> wow, even the AC did not like that joke. <laughs> Crickets even from the AC on that one. Uh, so in this movie, we have... Sixteen that I could count, and then a like at least a dozen dudes get fragged with grenades in a scene that's pretty oh, yeah. brutal with Magneto, but I couldn't even like count how many it was. So it's probably it's in like the the high twenties. Yeah. Um four that I counted who are named characters. Wow. We've got Lady Death Strike. Uh-huh. We've got Striker. hmm We've got Jason. Who uh, presumably yeah. dies? Like, I mean, yeah. he, he does die. You, mm-hmm. you don't see it, but he, he gets left in the cerebro, and that all gets washed away. And Gene Gray, yeah, um, which is the big, the big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, at the end of this movie, a little bit of doubt is thrown onto that particular death um, because of the stinger at the end, uh, where you see the the phoenix shape underneath the water. But yeah,
1: a little treat for the we're fans. Gonna, I did think all of that, like, the lake stuff and the mountain stuff at the beginning, like, all of that location filming is beautiful. It's really pretty. Uh, Really gorgeous. I think the worst-looking thing in the movie, to me, is the plane chase. Like, the plane chase is the only thing where I was like, oh, this looks so bad today. You mentioned Jason. I think it would be, like, an easier narrative move to have the ending hinge somehow on the relationship between Jason and and his father Mm -hmm. or on between Jason and professor X, yeah, like some sort of redemption there seems like the easier way out. So I guess it's, it's at least notable if not like a good thing that they like just kind of leave that plot line alone that he just is like a horrible guy who abandoned his son. And that son who does a lot in this movie just has like no agency is just trapped by his father. And never, yeah. never changes, never gets a comeuppance.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, they die. Yeah, and there's a. I mean, there's a comeuppance there, but yeah,
1: but it, yeah, but he doesn't kill his father. Like, he oh doesn't. yeah, no, he doesn't turn yeah. on
0: him or anything like that. No, hmm. that. that's interesting you bring that up that didn't even occur to me as something that you might see maybe because it's like because of the number of times that i've seen this movie but i don't know i mean how many movies do you see where like the bad guy hates their kid right and then the kid turns on the on the dad or the dad like comes back to save the kid yeah yeah some sort of self-sacrifice at the last minute
1: Mm mm-hmm who was your MVP OTW for this film? Oh. Your favorite character who is not
0: Wolverine. Well, it's one of the blue people. <laughs>
1: oh boy! Uh, Let's work our way down.
0: It, it uh, like I don't know. It's gotta it, no. It's gotta be Nightcrawler. Mm. Just like does so much cool stuff in this movie. Saves saves Professor X. Saves Storm. Uh, really like sets I i always thought that they were gearing up for a third movie where Storm and Nightcrawler are like a couple or oh, like are that's going or like heading in that direction. Yeah, I can see that you can you like you can tell that he like is into her and she is like the person who has the most like human interactions with him. Yeah. Uh and I always thought like that would be a cool way to go. Um I think the faith element of his character
1: is really cool. Yeah. And fully explored in this too. like, Or at least thoroughly explored in a way that it probably wouldn't be in most other movies. Mm -hmm. And I think even that ties back to maybe one of the lines Storm had in the first movie. So I would like to see like more between them. Yeah. They're both great in this movie.
0: They are, really. I
1: think almost everyone turns in a really solid performance in this. Yeah. Apparently, under duress... From what yeah, we read earlier, from some, so, yeah, from some messed up stuff that was going on too. Yeah,
0: uh, so yeah, who's your who's your MVP on this um, other than Wolverine?
1: Yeah, there are a lot of characters I really like, but my MVP OTW is actually Sean Ashmore as Bobby Drake slash Iceman. No way.
0: Okay, I think he's
1: really good in this. All right, I think. Well, I think he's good in the first one too, mm-hmm. but I think he like. That's a tough role to play. Mm. He's like jealous of his teacher who Mm -hmm. his girlfriend has a crush on. Mm -hmm. He's like dreamboat high school boyfriend. He also has to be like horny teenager who can't Mm -hmm. get it on with his girlfriend. Yeah. And he also is like friends with Pyro, but like the good, like knows that his friend is going down a dark place. Uh Uh-huh. And he doesn 't know how to deal with it, and I think that he like plays the balance of those things so well, like all of those could so easily go to a, bla- a bad place so quickly, yeah, uh, with a less talented actor. But I think he has like a really soft touch to the character. I like him in rogue's relationship. I love the scene early on with him in Wolverine
0: mm, that's a good scene
1: and I think I like really feel for him in the scene where he kind of gets like outed to his family yeah like it feels that he like has real tension like the the way he delivers the line earlier like my family's from boston you mm-hmm. know there yeah, yeah. there that is like present on his mind and what happens there is not really his fault yeah certainly would it. have been his choice and clearly makes like lifelong changes for him <laughs> yeah. because of that you know yeah. Like relationships severed. So I think he's great in this movie. And I liked, uh, I noticed a lot of his stuff a lot more this time watching it. Oh, cool.
0: Any, any last thoughts, anything else you want to say? I mean, back to, back to the things we've been saying earlier about like people holding this up as like one of the greatest comic book movies of all time or like the greatest movie of all time or anything yeah. like that. I don't think that this is like the greatest superhero movie of all time. And I do certainly don't think it comes anywhere near to being like the what in the greatest movies of all time but i do think it is fun in ways that like it's fun and it's light like even in it i don't know it is it seems strange to say about a movie that is like so horror based and like so dark but it is like fun and light and that is like something that i like about these movies and particular against like other not just other comic book movies but just against other action movies mm-hmm. this whole idea of like the x-men are just a little campier like everything about it is just like you have to suspend your belief you're just belief, yeah. just like a little bit more to like get into the x-men and like i feel like this movie goes for that in one of the biggest ways of all of them and pulls it off while delivering like some fairly emotional moments for all of the characters and like some badass power scenes for a bunch of the characters so i think like all the rounds it does a really good job of that i think people who want to put comic book movies in like the greatest movies of all time those people need to be like questioned deeper about like <laughs> have you seen other movies uh but yeah that's that's kind of where i fall in this um, uh, it's an ensemble movie and i love an ensemble movie uh-huh yeah yeah it is the empire strikes back of the x-men movies which is to say maybe the best but still imperfect sure
1: yeah i like this movie a lot too i enjoyed watching it which may be like the highest praise i can give to a film in this series uh-huh uh, we still got that DNA opening crawl again. Oh, yeah. I wonder how long into the series that's going to last. I was pretty surprised to see it again. This one starts off in an actually pretty good looking like Starfield Mm-mm. type opening monologue and then goes into what I thought might be a Silver Surfer reference or a Galactic reference, both characters owned by Fox. Huh. Um, But I'm not really sure if it was. There still were like definitely a lot of like hallmarks of this era of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. It's certainly like a lot more gratuitous in the way it's like framing its female characters mm-hmm. than I would like or than we see with good examples today. There's one specific scene, uh one specific shot when Mystique is seducing the Richard Jewell looking dude where they get both <laughs> both her boobs and butt in the same shot that i wrote down as like the peak of like 90s thousands action exploitative yeah
0: filming of female characters and that's when she's human not blue so i obviously didn't enjoy that
1: because <laughs> yes, your eyes were closed <laughs> yeah i just tapped you for every moment there was another <laughs> blue character on screen um I also want to say that both of our MVPs last week I think are really good in this. I think McKellen mm. gets to like cut loose a little bit more when the focus isn't on him. Yeah. Um and I think that Famke is excellent in this again playing like a like poorly underwritten role, but I think her like sacrifice at the end actually like got me a little bit in a way that I wasn't expecting. And I think um yeah, I think she's excellent. One of the best things about this franchise, she was a Bond girl before this. She's oh, the Bond girl in GoldenEye, which I haven't seen, huh. so it made me want to go and seek that out. Haven't seen to it see some of her other work. And I think that this.
0: Alan Cumming is also in GoldenEye.
1: Oh, interesting. So, yes, yeah, Cum- Cumming's very good in this too. So is Brian Cox. Mm-hmm. I love um, when they introduce like big new characters into the world, and we get to see how they play. Yeah, with the characters we got.
0: I do like that about this one. is like there's so much... It's like so much more efficient in the first half hour of storytelling than the first one is. It just like feels like you know what the X-Men are. Here's what's going on in this movie. Instead of like having to introduce everything. And it's still a half hour longer than the one that came before. Yeah. Because there's so much going on.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And this one never devolves into... 20 minutes where all that's happening is one single action scene. Yeah. Like this one does a lot of cross cutting and the action is more well shot, obviously, but it never, this is a film where like the answer is not that they have to kick harder. Yeah. Which is kind of the thing I always dislike about superhero movies is where like the arc is that you just have to punch them harder. Yeah. And then you win. So we'll be back next week.
0: Yeah. With x-men the last stand there is not a three in that title but we can dig into that and all of the other things that we feel about that movie
1: yeah get ready for a long behind the scenes drama section on that one. oh lord as we attempt to discover what went wrong if uh if x23 was not like personal to us as the title of this miniseries uh-huh. we really could have called it the last dance oh that that, is such a good joke
0: that is a good joke yeah and if there are any last stands uh please really do email us at the uh yes uh (laughs) whatever our email (laughs) is that we're about to say in the outro um please email us there and tell us
1: i was truly in that moment like what's the name of our podcast uh email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com with your feelings about the Last Stand, yeah. um. and if you are truly offended by what we had to say about X Two and Spider Man Two, in this, uh, please remember that we don't have an email address and there's no way to contact us. And if you and were- please stop playing this immediately before the credits, so you don't hear
0: any ways to contact us. And if you were uh, offended by anything I may or may not feel about the MCU, <laughs> rewatch all of them.
1: That's me and i will and if you are a blue person i have to say that i am it is uh, not, I am single. not single <laughs> but uh, all right well i think that about wraps it up on x2 before we get x2
0: stay safe out there it is still a pandemic <laughs> Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcast. It is created and produced by Wade lawrence Holloman and me, Emmett Temple. Wade also edits and mixes this podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.